Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I didn't finish chapter 2 last Sunday night, so we're continuing chapter 2 this morning on verses 10 through 26. Hear then the word of the Lord from 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 10 through 26. This is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things, charging them before God not to fight about words. This is in no way profitable and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself, approved to God, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth or rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent, empty speech, for this will produce an even greater measure of godlessness. And their word will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. They have deviated from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and are overturning the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, having this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord must turn away from unrighteousness. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver bowls, but also those of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. So if anyone purifies himself from anything, he will be a special instrument, set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But reject foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they breed quarrels. The Lord's slave must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the devil's trap, having been captured by him to do his will. Father, thank you. Thank you for being a God who is not silent. Thank you for being a dad who speaks to your children. And just like we pray that you would anoint me to preach your word, we pray that you would anoint all of us to hear your word. That we would be humble and contrite and broken in spirit over our sin. We pray that we would tremble at your word. For that is the one to whom you will look. So Father, look on us with favor. Bless us and keep us and make your face shine on us. Because apart from your favor and grace and activity in our lives right now, in our hearts, this word will fall on deaf ears. 
and hard hearts. So may your spirit come now and glorify our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 10 tells us that Paul endures all things for the elect. He endures suffering, all kinds of suffering. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 to 27, let me read it to you. I'm not sure if you're familiar with how much Paul suffered, but let me read it to you. Paul says, I have far more labors than these so-called servants of Christ, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, near death many times. Five times I received 39 lashes in the back from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods by the Romans. Once I was stoned by my enemies. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I face dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the open country, dangers on the sea, and dangers among false brothers. Labor and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and lacking clothing. Not to mention other things, there is the daily pressure on me, my care for all the churches. Paul suffered for the gospel, did he not? Paul suffered for the gospel. And as we learned last week, he was calling Timothy not to shrink in shame. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Verse 8 of chapter 1. Don't shrink in shame, but share in the pain. Share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. And so, as Paul suffered much, he called, he called Timothy and he calls us today at First Southern Baptist Church of Bellflower, the saints here, he calls us to suffer much as well. Why? Why should we suffer? Why did Paul suffer? This is all, by the way, introduction. Verses 10 through 13 here are going to be our introduction to, our, to the rest of the sermon. So, why did Paul suffer? Look at verse 10. He says, this is why I endure all things for the elect. So that they may what? What does he want the elect to have in verse 10? Salvation. And salvation is in who? Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So why does Paul suffer? Because he wants the elect, God's people, to be what? Saved, right? And we talked about this last Sunday night, not Sunday morning. Saved from what? Saved from our sins, saved from hell, and saved from who? From, from God, right? God saves us from God. God saves us from his judgment, his righteous judgment, not his grumpy judgment. His righteous, just, and fair judgment. God saves us from himself. And so Paul suffered beatings, whippings, being stoned, being shipwrecked. Why? So that the elect would obtain salvation. And he's telling Timothy, now you suffer so that they can obtain salvation. And he's telling us today, you suffer, Christian, so that they can obtain salvation. Now, don't they already have salvation? The, Bible's talking, the Bible talks about salvation in several ways. Let me give you two. One is initial salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved. Past tense. Saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And so there's the famous story of a young, uh, young person trying to share the gospel at a, at a local park. And he taps a, a theologian sitting on a bench, a Christian theologian. And he doesn't know he's a Christian theologian, and he's there to share the gospel with them. And he says, sir, are you saved? And the man says, what do you mean? 
Do you mean, have I been saved? Am I being saved? Or will I be saved? Because there are more than just the past tense aspects of salvation. Not just initial salvation when you're converted, but future salvation when Christ comes again. Or what we will call final salvation. Paul isn't not, Paul's not just about initial salvation, just tipping you into the church. Yeah, you got baptized. Clap your hands and then leave them to just fend for themselves. If they follow Jesus or not, oh well, at least we baptized them and we counted them as part of our church, right? That's not what Paul's about. He's not just about initial salvation. He's about final salvation. Romans 5, 9 and 10 talks about final salvation. Let me read it to you. Paul says, Much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. We will be saved in the judgment because we have been justified, declared righteous. Because we have been initially saved, we will be finally saved from the wrath to come. And verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, that's initial salvation, we were reconciled, we were saved by grace through faith, how much more, having been reconciled, past tense, will we be saved by his life in the future? Final salvation. So Paul suffers so that the people will have initial salvation and final salvation because it's in Christ Jesus with what? Eternal glory. So this salvation is not just so you can go to church and give offering and attend and sing songs and hear long sermons. No, it's so that you will share eternal glory with God in the new heavens and the new earth. So let's look at verse 10 again. He says, I endure all things for the elect so that they may obtain salvation, which is in who? Where is salvation found? In who? Christ Jesus. If you're not a Christian this morning, this message is primarily for Christians. It usually is every Sunday. It's primarily for Christians. But if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning visiting, we're glad you're here. And you're welcome to come here and learn with us the Bible every Sunday. We hope you do. But let me just tell you what God is telling you this morning. He's saying that salvation is in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. He's the only way you can be saved from judgment. So if you're not a Christian and you're saying... I wonder what the main message of Christianity is. What is this gospel they keep talking about? This is the gospel that God made you and created you and created all of us and created this world good so that we would reflect his glory. But we, though made in his image to reflect his glory, we have sinned against God. We have rebelled against God and said, we won't live for your glory. God will live for our own glory. And because of that, God sentences us to death. In hell, forever, judgment, the penalty of sin is death. But here's the good news. Here's the gospel, the main message of Christianity. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the King, to come and save his people from their sins. Jesus would come and live the life that they should have lived without ever sinning, not even once. Then he dies on the cross as a dirty, wretched, guilty sinner, even though he never sinned. Why did he die for sins? Was it for his sins? No. It was for our sins. It was, it was for the sins of every single person on earth who will repent from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And so here's the good news to you. God is saying to you this morning, I will this morning save you from your sins if you will repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. My son who I sent to live for you and die for you and rise for you. That is the gospel. And that is God calling you this morning. Call on the Lord to save you if you are not a Christian, and God will save you and forgive you of all of your sins. Now let's go back to the verse. Verse 10 says, I endure all things for the elect. Now that word, 
It's kind of sticky. You say, elect, ooh, what do we do with this word, right? That gets into theology. What does he mean by the elect? Paul doesn't shy away from this. In Titus 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to build up the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. What is the elect? Now, the Bible talks this way, and so it uses this language. We shouldn't run from this language, but we should seek to understand it. We believe all of God's word is inspired, right? And so we need to understand what this word means. Is this teaching fatalism? Do you know what fatalism is? That everything is determined by fate, and so your choices don't matter at all. That's a fatalistic way of thinking about the world. It's saying that everything is determined in such a way that you have no real choices. And so some people distort this, and they say, well, if that's true, then you should only gospelize the elect. Some people actually say that. You should only share the gospel with the elect. Is that true? No. Well, one, you can't even know who the elect are. It doesn't make any sense. Well, they might say, well, you can guess. No, you can't guess. You just share the gospel with everyone. Is this saying that you don't have to pray or evangelize? That's what fatalism would say. You don't have to pray or evangelize. Is this saying we should limit who we offer our salvation to? Is that what Paul is saying? No, absolutely not. Paul, who wrote 2 Timothy, here wrote 1 Timothy, where he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so we can't say that we're not going to share the gospel with everyone. And yet, is this teaching an openness of God theology? Maybe a theology that says that God, God's decisions are bound by our decisions, whereas God is finally the reactor and not the actor? Is God waiting for our response because he's not in control? Is, he saying, is this saying that God is completely reacting to our acting and our, our decision is the ultimate decisive factor? Is God merely helpless as he just hopes, please, please, please choose me, I hope you will. Is God helplessly hoping that we would choose him? Obviously not. That's not what God is either. So what does the Bible teach then? The Bible is teaching that God foreknew and chose those who would be saved. It says that in Romans 8, 29. But it also says, those whom he foreknew, he also called, and those he called, he also justified. What is ju- and if you know the book of Romans, how is someone justified? By what? Faith. Faith. And so, all those he chose have to be justified by personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they do have to choose God, don't they? They do have to believe. They do have to repent from their sins. So what is the Bible teaching? Here's what the Bible's teaching. That God is in control and he's all powerful and no one can thwart the plan of God. And yet we have responsibility to choose him or reject him. And we will answer for our choice. And God is saying here, Paul is saying here, that Paul suffers so that those who are chosen would come to final, to initial and final salvation. Even as he's sharing the gospel with everyone, because the gospel is for everyone. Isn't that what John 3.16 says? For God so loved the what? The world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, will not perish, but have eternal life. And Paul suffered so that they would come to have eternal life. And Paul's telling Timothy to suffer, and he's telling you now to suffer so that people would have eternal life. Why? Look at verse 11, 12, and 13. Here's why he does this. Why does he suffer? For if we have died with him, we will also what? Live with him. But you have to die with Jesus first. You have to take up your cross and die with him. Verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Does Paul want us to live with Jesus forever? 
Yes. Does he want us to reign with God forever? Yes. So what do we have to do? We have to die to ourselves. We have to die with Christ. And then we also have to do what in verse 12? Endure. Endure what? Suffering. Endure trials. Endure temptations. Endure persecutions. Endure opposition from other people. You can't make it to the end if you give up before that. God will sustain those who are His. And Paul suffers so that Christians will endure. He becomes a model of endurance. Do you feel like giving up, brother? Do you feel like giving up, sister? Just know that that temptation is not yours alone. That's a temptation we all face. And yet Paul says, I suffer so that you don't give up. Don't give up. You have to endure. And we suffer to serve each other so that every member of our church and everyone we share the gospel with who believes in Christ will endure all the way to the end. Because if we endure, we will also reign with him. But, look at verse 12, if we deny him, then what? If you don't, if you don't endure, if you deny Jesus, he will deny you. And verse 13, which is often misunderstood, if we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That is not saying if we're faithless, he's going to save us anyways. You're saved by grace through what? Faith. If you have no faith or if you are faithless, if you start by faith, but then you fizzle out and you do not endure and you deny God and you don't trust Jesus anymore, God is faithful to punish you and judge you forever. Because God cannot deny who? God's ultimate allegiance is to who? Himself. That's what makes him consistent. That's what makes him stable. God is faithful. God is a faithful, immovable, dependable, predictable rock. He will not move or change. You can know his reaction to you and your life. You don't have to guess what God is like or what he will do. Now, this is good news, but this is also bad news. This is bad news for the faithless, right? This is bad news for those who will deny Christ eventually or even initially. This is bad news for those who want to preserve their life and not lose it for Christ and the gospel. This is bad news for those who are quitters, who won't endure to the end. You know why? Because this rock will crush you. That's scary. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And yet this is good news for believing Christians, right? This is good news for the bold. This is good news for those who have died with Christ. This is good news for those who are suffering right now and still say, I will not let you go, Lord Jesus. I will keep holding on to you. I will stay faithful to you all the way to the end of my life. Even if he slays me, yet will I trust him. Those who endure have a rock to stand on. No other rock is faithful and sturdy, right? Not your spouse, not your family, your health, your job, your money, your talents, your local church, your leaders, your city, your planet. Nothing, all of it is unstable except this rock who is faithful and will never deny himself. So if you entrust yourself to Jesus and endure trusting Jesus and endure suffering, not shrinking in shame, but sharing in the pain all the way to the end, you are standing on solid rock that will never move. Praise God for his faithfulness. So here's the main idea of the text as we're getting into the body now, 14 through 26. Paul suffered and endured everything to help people obtain initial and final salvation. That was his goal. That's Timothy's goal. And now that is the goal of every Christian. Here's our goal. To suffer, live, and serve others in such a way as to help people obtain initial and final salvation.
That's what we want to do. We want to suffer and be used by God. Don't you want to be used by God? We want to be used by God to help people be saved. Right? That's it in the end. That's all that matters. And so Paul gives us three things to do if we're going to be used by God to suffer well to help people be saved. Here's the three things. I'll give them to you right in the front and then we'll go through them. Correctly use the Bible. That's the first thing. Second thing, avoid false teaching. Third thing, purify yourself. Okay? Those are the three things God wants you to do if you are going to be used in your suffering to help people obtain salvation. Correctly use the Bible, avoid false teaching, and purify yourself. Let's look at those one at a time. Number one, correctly use the Bible to help people obtain initial and final salvation. Look at verses 14 and 15. We get this point from verses 14 and 15. It says, Paul says to Timothy, remind them of these things. What things? The things he's just talking about. The faithful sayings. Remind them of the truth. That's teaching them the Bible. Teaching them the word. And what do you do when you teach them in verse 14? Charging them before God not to fight about words. This is in no way profitable and leads to the ruin of the hearers. So what is Timothy supposed to do and what are we supposed to do? Remind people of God's truth. Remind people God is faithful. Remind people God saves and that if you are faithful and you endure and if you've died with him, you're going to live with him. Remind people of the good news. Remind people of God's judgment that if you deny him or if you're faithless, he will deny you. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to fight about words because you know what Christians do? They fight about words. We are tempted to fight over words. And he's saying charge them before God. Every fight should be with God in the middle for God's glory, not for our own personal fights. So charge them before God. Stop fighting about words. Don't let them fight about words. Again, to correctly use the Bible, you can't fight about words. You need to go to verse 15. What else do we need to do? And here's where I'm getting the word correctly use the Bible. Verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth or rightly handling the word of truth. You need to correctly use the Bible. And you need to be diligent. You need to work hard in understanding the Bible and applying the Bible to people's lives. You know, this is the most powerful weapon in the universe. It's called in Ephesians 6, the what of the spirit? The sword of the spirit. And swords are sharp, right? You can cut yourself with swords. I'm not exaggerating when I say the word of God is the most powerful force in the universe. That's not an understatement. That's not exaggeration. I mean, that's not an overstatement. That's not exaggeration. The word of God is really the most powerful force in the universe. And so you need to know how to use it well. You can't be lazy when you look at the Bible. You need to be diligent and study, it says in the King James Version. Study to show yourself approved to God because these words lead people into their eternal destiny. It's like a seed that grows in their mind and bears all kinds of fruit for good or for ill. You know people have incorrectly used the Bible before? Right? We can use the Bible to justify our sin. Didn't Satan try to do this on Jesus in the, in the wilderness? He tried to use the Bible to tempt Jesus to sin. And we can do this today. We say, well, God, if Jesus died for my sins, he died for my sins past, present, and future. So if I sin right now, The Bible says that I'm forgiven, so I might as well sin. It's okay. That's using the Bible incorrectly. Or God is in control, so this must be part of his plan that I sin, so I'm just going to sin. 
God is in control, but that's not an excuse for you to sin. That's using the Bible incorrectly. Cults use the Bible incorrectly, don't they? Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, even those in historic Christianity, Roman Catholicism. You can use the Bible with a lot of truth and, and some error and lead people astray. Now, we could use the Bible for guilt trips. We can guilt trip people with the Bible. Right? I, I know I've done this as a parent. I've been tempted to just say, does the Bible say, son or daughter, children, obey your parents? And I'm not saying it to serve them. I'm using it to, to give them a guilt trip. Or we could use the Bible with slogans, sloganeering, which is not helpful. Like, all things should be done decently and in order. I got some of those statements from some people at the association saying, saying certain things that I shouldn't do in our association to help the association be healthy because you're supposed to do everything decently in order, which means you follow the specific protocol of some people and not the actual bylaws and policy and procedures of the association. And they're using the Bible to tell me do everything decently and in order. You can use the Bible and slogans from the Bible incorrectly, can't you? You can use it to manipulate people. You can use it to abuse pastoral authority or bully people with less biblical knowledge. How, how should you use the Bible? To teach and instruct and rebuke and correct with all righteousness to serve people for God's glory and not for your own gain. So if you're not a Christian, here's what God's saying to you. Or here's what I want to tell you as a non-Christian. We don't want to brainwash you. Okay? If you're not a Christian, you're here. Our job is not to brainwash you. We don't want to force you into our view as if we are superior to you intellectually. We simply want you to know the Bible. That's it. We're not trying to push our views on you. We're trying to tell you what the Bible says. You know what it's like? It's not that we're better than you. This is what we're saying. We are poor beggars and we found bread. And we're saying, hey, there's bread over here. Just go right here. There's some bread here. Aren't you hungry? I'm hungry. And I found bread here. Come over here and get some bread with us. Now you can say, oh, that's not bread. That's a rock. And you can throw it if you want. But we just want you to at least examine it. Just think about the Bible with us. Please ask your questions and try to understand God's word because we believe this is the bread of life. And if you eat this, you will be saved and you'll have eternal life. We're not trying to brainwash. We're trying to persuade you thoughtfully, rationally. What does this mean for the Christian? We need to work hard at knowing God's word. As hard as we do at cooking our food. Some of you eat healthy and you're so diligent with your eating of healthy food. Be as diligent with reading your Bible. Some of you are diligent in working out. Be as diligent in reading your Bible. Some of you are diligent with your job or your schoolwork. And you get straight A's. Get straight A's before God in reading your Bible. And knowing your Bible. Don't get lazy. Don't get stuck with a question when you read your Bible and not find the answer. Ask. Ask me. That's why I'm here. I'm here to answer some questions. And I don't know all the answers, but I'll do my best. But ask questions. Don't be lazy. We have Wednesday night Bible studies where we just have a discussion and we ask questions and we read the Bible together. Don't put off your Bible reading any more than you'd put off sleep or you'd put off eating your next meal. Your stomach won't let you skip meals. What about your spiritual stomach? Do you feel it grumbling? It's hungry. Feed it, the word of God. People are dying and we need to use the Bible correctly to serve them, don't we? We need to not abuse people. There are so many false teachers out there, and it's confusing out there. First Southern Baptist Church, what does it mean as a church? This means that you need to hold me as your pastor accountable to the word. It is possible that I can use the Bible incorrectly. And who's going to correct me? You are. And you know how you're going to do it? You're going to use the what? Use the Bible. 
Use the Bible. I'm not infallible. I'm fallible. I'm correctable. So please use the Bible to correct me and sharpen me. Let's all grow together. Parents, don't use the Bible to manipulate, manipulate your kids. Use the Bible to empower your kids to walk with God so close that they even challenge your walk with God. Children, any children here? Learn God's word as you grow up. This is not an overstatement. Nothing is more important in your childhood as you develop into adulthood than knowing God's word through diligent study. Nothing is more important in your childhood. Not the food you eat, not the school classes you learn, not your exercise. Nothing is more important in your childhood than learning God's word. So learn it. That's the first thing. Correctly use the Bible. Secondly, avoid false teaching. Look at verses 16 through 19 here. Avoid false teaching. Correctly use the Bible. Secondly, avoid false teaching to help people obtain salvation. Verse 16 says, But avoid irreverent empty speech. So avoid the irreverent empty speech, false teaching. Why? What does it do? What does it produce? In verse 16. Ungodliness, a greater measure of godlessness. If you give attention to irreverent, empty speech and you just you waddle around in that mud, it produces more ungodliness, more godlessness. Don't even just rise above it. Verse 17 says, This word will spread like what? Like gangrene. It's like a cancer. It spreads. That's the effect of irreverent, empty speech and false teaching. It spreads like a cancer. That's what verse 17 is saying. Hymenaeus and Philetus were teachers in the church and they were teaching false things. And it was spreading, their teaching was spreading like cancer. What does verse 18 say about these two, Hymenaeus and Philetus and these false teachers? They have done what? They have strayed from the truth. They have deviated from the truth. They went, they're not correctly using the Bible. They've deviated from the truth. And they're saying that the the resurrection has already taken place. Jesus already came back again. That's what they're saying. And people started believing them. And people started thinking that they missed out on the resurrection. And so it overturned, it says in verse 18, it overturned the faith of some. That's what false teaching does. That's what irreverent empty speech does. It's not harmless. It's not harmless. Your speech is not harmless. Irreverent, empty speech harms people. It hurts people. It hurts churches. And it overturns the faith of some. It actually causes some to turn away from Jesus. If you can imagine that. Speculative and false teaching on major doctrines is fatal. And it requires immediate spiritual attention. Immediate medical attention, spiritually speaking. Now, does this mean, wait, wait, PJ, you just said in verse 18 that it overturns the faith of some. Are you saying that people can lose their salvation? Does this mean if someone can trust Jesus and then someone gave false teaching, so it overturned their faith, so someone can lose their salvation? Is that what it's saying in verse 18? No, it's not saying that because of verse 19. What does verse 19 say? Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, having this inscription. The Lord knows those who are what? His. And everyone who names the name of the Lord must turn away from unrighteousness. In other words, not everyone who's in church, or not everyone who says they're a Christian is a 
Christian, not everyone who says they belong to Jesus belongs to Jesus. There are false teachers and there are false Christians in churches. Every church, probably, unless there's a perfect church, I guess. So there are false Christians. You can't lose. So in other words, do they lose their salvation? They don't lose their salvation. They never really were saved, right? They never really were God, so they thought they were. And so when the false teaching came, it overturned their faith. That's why you need to endure. That proves that you were really saved. Now, this is a quote from number 16. I'd have you turn there, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to have you turn there. I'm just going to turn there and read some verses from it. You're welcome to turn there, but um, you don't have to. Number 16, we, we covered this a few weeks ago, a few months ago, when I, when I preached the book of Numbers in one sermon, the whole book. Number 16 is the rebellion of Korah. Do you guys remember that story? So what tribe is the priesthood from? Levi, right? So if Old Testament quiz, for those of you who know the Old Testament, there's how many tribes? Twelve tribes, and the one tribe of Levi has the priests. Now, is every man in the tribe of Levi a priest? No. Only those who have descended from who? Aaron. So one family among the Levites are priests. Now, here comes another family, Korah, and he's a man, and he says, You household of Aaron, you guys have gone too far. We're Levites too. Everyone should be a priest. All of God's people are priests. Not just you guys. Not just you, Aaron, and your household. So they complained against Moses and Aaron in number 16. And you know what Moses says in number 16, verse 5? He says this. He said to Korah, first he fell face down because Moses is very humble. In verse 5, he says to Korah and all his followers. By the way, Korah got 250 men to follow him. And so this is what Moses says. Tomorrow morning, the Lord knows those who are his. He will reveal who belongs to him and who is set apart and the one who he'll let come near him. He will let the one he chooses come near him. So there it is. There's a the quote. The Lord knows those who are his. Korah, you think you're part of God's priesthood? God knows who those who are his, even if you think you are. Korah is claiming he's a priest. And Moses is saying, God knows those who are his. And so he, he has a showdown. Everyone get a fire pan. Get all of your 250 men. And you, Korah, and your two guys, Dathan and... Um, What's his name? Dathan and Abiram. You, you guys get your fire pan and we'll, Aaron will come in with his fire pan tomorrow and God will let the right one flame on and that will be the, the right priest and everyone else will be the wrong one. So God will show us who are his priests. The next day, it happens. Each man took his fire pan, it says in verse 18. They placed fire in it, put incense on it and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Korah assembled there with the whole community against them at the entrance of this tabernacle, this tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to the whole community. And then God spoke to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from this community so I might kill them instantly. So who did God choose? Aaron and Moses, right? And then Moses and Aaron fell face down and said, Lord, please, no. And so God says in verse 23 or 24, tell the community to get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And so Moses tells them all to get away from their household and their homes. And then Moses says in verse 28, This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not of my own will, that I didn't choose to be a priest or this role of mediator. If these men die naturally as all people would and suffer the fate of all, then the Lord has not sent me. But, now this is in the wilderness, imagine this. But if the Lord brings about something unprecedented as the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them along with all that belongs to them so that they go down alive into Sheol, that's the place of the dead, 
then you will know that these men have despised Yahweh, the Lord. And just as he finished speaking, the ground beneath them split open, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households, all Korah's people and all their possessions. The Lord knows those who are his. And those who claimed to be his and weren't got swallowed alive by the ground and went straight to to their death. Wow. Later on, he kills the, the other 250 who are with Korah. And then the next day, the rest of the congregation comes up and says, you killed these men, Moses and Aaron. And Moses and Aaron are like, what? Like, how, how do we have power to open up the ground? Really? Like, we killed these people. And so God sends another plague and starts killing more Israelites. And Moses tells Aaron, get an incense and light it. And as he lights it, a plague sweeps through and kills 14,700 more. The Lord knows those who are his. And those 14,700, 14,700 plus the 250 plus the three, um, Korah, Abiram, and Dathan were not the Lord's people. The Lord knows those who are his. You cannot lose your salvation. You will endure to the end. But not everyone who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. Not everyone who claims to be a teacher or a pastor is a biblically qualified teacher or pastor. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord must turn away from what? Second Timothy, go back to Second Timothy 2.19. Everyone who names the name of the Lord must turn away from what? Unrighteousness. If you claim Jesus Christ as your Lord, you know how you're going to show it? By turning away from unrighteousness. We call that repentance. If you say, I trust Jesus and I'm a Christian, and there's no evidence of turning away from unrighteousness and enduring in faith in Jesus Christ in your life, you're probably not a Christian. And the Lord knows. I don't know. I'm not saying I can read anyone's heart, but the Lord knows those who are his. And so how does this apply to us? What does this mean for us? First Southern Baptist Church, this is telling us to to avoid false teaching and to not get caught up in Bible-ignoring disputes and controversies. If people want to fight about words and it's not having to do with what the Bible is teaching or telling us, don't don't get involved. Just, Just skip over that fight. Know, who's a, who, know the correct teachers and know the correct teaching. You know we have in the back these booklets called the Baptist Faith and Message, which is our church's statement of faith? I would challenge every family here to read that and review it with your family at least once a year. Is that hard? Small booklet. Just read over it. And you might say, well, PJ, I already know everything that's in there. Well, if you know it, then celebrate it. Isn't it good? Then we just sing, I love to tell the story. Right? We love to, uh, it says, I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering to hear it, just like all the rest. Isn't that true? Don't you love hearing God's truth over and over again? So take the statement of faith of our church and review it so that you know correct teaching. And you can avoid false teaching. And then turn away from unrighteousness in your own life. Don't claim Christ and don't call everyone a Christian who says they're a Christian just because they said it. In our culture today, the Bible, or in our world today, it's saying, how dare anyone question me? How are you going to tell me what's in my heart? And I want to say to you, I can't tell you what's in your heart. But you know what? You can't tell what's in your heart either. It says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful. So you can't tell what's in your heart. You know what we can tell? If you're turning away from unrighteousness. So if you're saying you're a Christian, turn away from unrighteousness. If you're not a Christian... I just want to apologize for all the false teachers out there and false Christians who confuse people. 
It's confusing. If you're not a Christian, if you go on TV or you look at the bookstore at Christian Teachers, you can be confused very easily and led astray. And I just want to say, you're saying, well, then why does God do that? Why can't God be clearer? Why does God have to allow so many false teachers in teaching? Here's why. Because God wants you to have a personal relationship with him where you're listening to his word. He wants you to know the word for yourself, even as a non-Christian. He wants you to discern. He wants to teach you as you study God's word. So avoid false teaching. And lastly, so we have three things here. If we're going to work to help people obtain salvation, we're going to correctly use the Bible. Secondly, we're going to avoid what? False teaching, because that can lead and overturn people in the faith. And third, we are going to purify ourselves. Purify yourself yourself to help people um, obtain salvation. What does verse 20, 20 say? If it said, turn away from unrighteousness, in verse 19, 20 says, Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver bowls, but also those of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. And then verse 21 says, So if anyone purifies himself... From anything dishonorable, he is what? If you purify yourself from sin and things that are dishonorable, you will be a what? A special instrument, set apart or holy, useful to the master, and prepared for every good work. Who wants to do good works here for God's glory? Who wants to bless other people? We do, right? And if we do, then let's turn away from unrighteousness. Let's purify ourselves from everything dishonorable so that we would be useful to the master and prepared for every good work. Robert Murray Machane said, a holy minister is a powerful weapon in the hand of God. And I would say that in your home and in your school and in your work. A holy employee, a holy family member who kills sin in their lives is a powerful weapon in the hand of God. You want to be a powerful husband, a powerful wife, a powerful parent, a powerful sibling, a powerful worker? Turn away from unrighteousness and purify yourself and you will be used by God. That's what verse 22 is saying. Look at verse 22. I love this verse. I wonder if God put this here so we would remember it. 2 Tim 2.22. 2 Timothy 2.22. This is a good verse to memorize. 2 Timothy 2.22. It's all twos all the way across. Okay, 2 Timothy 2.22. What, what is it? Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That, that's, that's, that's the essence of this point. Flee youthful passions. Flee youthful lust. You don't have to be a youth to have youthful passions. Right? When we have kids, and we have kids come over our house, right? When we have different families come over, and what do the little ones do? The really little ones, the two-year-olds. What do they do when they have the toys? And, and they start, you know, the, a child doesn't want a toy unless the other kid has it, right? Once the other kid has it, then all hell breaks loose, right? Ah, that's my toy. You didn't even want that toy. That's a youthful passion. It's immature. It lacks perspective. You fight over things that, that are childish. You don't need to be youth to be having youthful passions. It's talking about immaturity in your passions, like youth. So what should you do with the youth, youthful passions, whether it's lust or anything? What should you do with it? Flee from it. Run from it. The way the Israelites ran from Korah and his household. It's the same word used. Right when the ground was about to swallow them up, what did Moses tell all the people? Get away from their household. Flee. Run from sin. Like it's a trap. Because that's what sin is. That's what youthful passions are. It's a trap. It's a death trap. And it wants to kill you. So run from these landmines. That's what temptation is. They're landmines. To kill you. Run like Joseph ran from sexually immoral temptation. 
Run like David, like Daniel ran from political power and prestige and popularity from Nebuchadnezzar and other emperors. So not, not only are you supposed to run and flee, you're also supposed to do what? Not only run from something, but run to something. What does verse 22 say? Run to what? Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Run to these things. In other words, pursue righteousness, obedience to God. Pursue doing the right thing for God's glory. What's faith? Trusting God's words, trusting the gospel, trusting Jesus, and faith that carries over into works, the works of love. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love one another, Jesus says, as I have loved you. So pursue loving God. Pursue loving your neighbors. Pursue loving fellow Christians in this church and outside of this church. Flee youthful passions, pursue love, and then pursue peace. Peace with God. Peace in your own conscience. Peace with other people. You don't have to be a non-Christian to fight with other people. You just got to be a sinner to fight with other people. And so we need to pursue peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will inherit the earth. Now, I like this about verse 22, because everything I said to you is not new until you get to the last part of verse 22. What does the last part say? Flee youthful passions and pursue these things along with who? Along with those who call on the Lord from a what? Pure heart. In other words, pursuing faith, love, peace, and righteousness is a community project. It's a community pursuit. Who are you supposed to pursue these things with? Those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Your fellow Christians. That's why God set up the New Testament church. There are to be no Lone Ranger Christians. I've said this before. I'll say it again. A Lone Ranger is a dead ranger. A Lone Ranger is a dead ranger in Christianity. You're supposed to pursue these things with your church. That's why God gave you a church. It's not A church is not primarily about the building or the, the type of songs you sing or the style of this or that. It's about pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace with each other and flee youthful passions. So what do we need? How does this apply to us? You know, this is why Baptist churches have had, had church covenants historically. It's to remind each other of these obligations. What we need in churches is intimate vulnerable relationships where we confess sins to each other. That's where you'll know the mark of a mature church. Do they confess sins to one another and gospelize each other? Or do they polish off their face spiritually before they come to church? I've said, I I don't know if I've said it here, I say this a lot, the church is not a, it's not a, it's not a runway model show, right? It's not like, it's not a runway where you just model your spiritual stuff. That's not what the church is. Some people think of church that way. They get ready first, and then they strut their stuff on Sunday. That's not what the church is. The church is a hospital with sick people who are struggling with sin, and they need help, and they need medicine. You don't, you know, people aren't strutting their health in hospitals, right? What do they do in hospitals? Why are they in hospitals? Because they have a need. Why are you in church? I have needs. I need you. I need the 74 members of First Southern Baptist Church of Bellflower. I need you for my own spiritual health. And you need each other because we cannot flee and pursue by ourselves. We're supposed to do this along with each other, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. If you're not a member of a church, join a church. That's why God gave churches. Not so you could just kind of taste test them. He gave you churches so that you can join them and pursue God together. Okay, verses 23 through 26 
just to close to finish this off and close in prayer. So here we're supposed to reject foolish, ignorant disputes. We talked about that already. And the pastors, the Lord's slave, and if you're going to be used by God, you must not quarrel, but be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing your opponents with gentleness. Why should you be gentle with people and patient and keep teaching them? Why? Verse 25, perhaps God will grant them what? What might God give them? In verse 25, repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth. So keep correctly using the Bible and avoid false teaching. And as you purify your own life and you're you're ministering to them gently, God might lead them to repentance and the knowledge of the truth. And then what does verse 26 say? Then they may come to their senses and escape the devil's trap, having been captured by him to do his will. That's not talking about those outside of the church. That's talking about those inside the church. This whole thing is about those inside the church. Look at verse 26 again. Think about this with people in the church, at churches. There are people who need to come to their senses and escape the devil's trap because they've been captured by him to do his will in promoting unhealth in the church. And so what do we need to do? We need to gently teach and be patient and loving and kind so that they can come to the knowledge of the truth and escape the devil's trap. You know who got caught in the devil's trap? Who is one of the most mightiest weapons of God in the church? The apostle Peter. Remember when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus said, you're right, and I'm going to go die. And on three days I will rise. And you know what Peter said? You will not die. How dare you, Jesus, say that? You are not going to die. I'm not going to let that happen. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Peter used by Satan? Yes. Can PJ be used by Satan? Yes. Can you be used by Satan? Yes. When you don't come to your senses and you're not correctly using the Bible and you're not purifying your own life and you're not avoiding these disputes, you can be used by Satan. I can be used by Satan. But if we speak the truth to each other and gospelize each other, we might come to our senses, repent, escape the devil's trap. God forbid that we be used for the devil's will in this church or in any church, right? We want to gospelize each other. So just to recap and then we close, correctly use the Bible, Avoid false teaching. Purify yourself so that God would use you to bring people to repentance, the knowledge of the truth, and so that they might obtain initial and final salvation. Father, please take these words and hide it in our heart that we would not sin against you. And Lord, we are not fooling ourselves. We know we have sinned against you. So we want to ask you for forgiveness. Please forgive us for being wimpy, for not wanting to suffer for the truth and for the gospel. And then, Father, forgive us for incorrectly using the Bible to manipulate and hurt people rather than to serve them. And then forgive us, Father, for getting caught up in irreverent, empty speech rather than avoiding it. Forgive us for our judgmentalism and our self-righteousness. Forgive us for impure lives. You tell us to purify ourselves. Forgive us for our impurity and and being childish and immature in many of our passions. Help us, Lord. Use us to serve others, to gently and patiently instruct others with your word so that repentance might be granted and we might escape the devil's trap. Father, we thank you for your word that gives clarity to our minds and lives. Use it now to continue to transform our lives and our church and our families. And may we take this gospel all over Los Angeles County and beyond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.